need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. Now, dear people of the internet, from the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and of all the massive, mysterious, megalithic structures on this island Earth, none have been speculated about and studied like the iconic pyramids of Giza. Theories range from temples for meditation and astral travel or some type of hermetic device preserving knowledge and sacred geometry for future generations, to an ancient free energy power plant, some type of mining operation, or maybe even an ancient observatory. However, the sad reality is that humanity historically invests most seriously in weaponry. And when you read ancient texts that describe the distant past, weaponry seems to be the name of the game. With vast and epic descriptions of great battles full of wildly advanced devices causing widespread destruction. And when one considers the close association of Mars with war and speculates about the destroyed planet origins of the asteroid belt, it starts to feel like some of these ancient wars might have been much bigger than anything we've seen in this round of war-torn history. And this is very much in line with the thinking that really put today's returning guest Dr. Joseph P. Farrell on the map many moons ago with his now legendary first book, The Giza Death Star, which only grew in popularity as it turned into a trilogy. And since then, Dr. Farrell has written nearly 40 books about everything from ancient weapons in Egypt and cosmic wars to financial alchemy and Venetian banking families, international Nazi power structures, secret physics and hidden technologies, the unified field, transhumanism, and pretty much all things alternative. I've been lucky enough to be doing interviews with Dr. Farrell since 2015 on pretty much all of these subjects and more. And now, eight years later, he's here again for our eighth go-around, and for this one, we're talking largely about his latest book, The Giza Death Star Revisited, which summarizes, revises, and updates the original Giza Death Star trilogy into a single volume, adds in information we didn't have at the time of the first book's release in 2002, and makes about as good a case as can be made. You can follow his ongoing work, learn more about his vast collection of books, and become a member for even more content on his website aptly named GizaDeathStar.com. So let's get into it. The great Nazi International Network Exposer, Oxford Certified Alternative History Scholar and Geopolitics Parsing Powerhouse, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Welcome back to the higher side. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me back. I'm sorry about my dog. The UPS man drove up just as you start, started your introduction. So, uh, but anyway, thanks for having me back. Of course. It's great to talk to you again. You're one of my favorite people to ever occupy the alternative space, a conspiracy culture national treasure, in fact. But 
I try not to bother you too much. Once a year feels like a good pace. I saw Giza Death Star Revisited was coming out, and it seemed like a nice opportunity to reach out. I went back and checked out the previous seven interviews, and we've actually never focused on your pyramids were a weapon hypothesis, though I know it's been peppered in throughout, as well as the off-the-books physics that helped to make the case. But let's lay a good base here. Break us into Giza Death Star 101, when the dog will allow. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the first thing that people have to understand, this new book is a summary and therefore a rewrite of the original trilogy. And for those who've been following me over the years, Greg, I've on more than one occasion complained that had I to do the original three books all over again, I would have done them in a very different way than I originally did. One of the reasons being that in the first three books, I was really also trying to get the ground prepared for a lot of the other books that were to follow, including the Nazi series. And as a result of that, the weapon hypothesis was obscured, and it was difficult for people to follow. So I thought, okay, I'm I'm going to redo these books someday when the copyright runs out. Well, the copyright ran out. My publisher allowed the books to go out of print, which meant that the copyright reverted to me. And I took that as my signal that I can go back now and rewrite those original three books in this book, which I did. I re-released the original three in their in exactly their original form without any rewrites. So those are still available, but just through a different publisher. But anyway, the new book, therefore, is about half consisting of the old material, just quite literally copied and pasted into the new book. I did add some new material to that copied and pasted material to clarify certain sections that I thought might be unclear. And I rearranged the material so that the argument about the pyramid being a weapon, I hope, is a lot clearer. And then I added some new material that was not available, of course, back when I wrote the book. So what basically is the weapon hypothesis? Firstly. The idea that the Great Pyramid was a weapon is not mine. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what many people seem to forget. It's actually a proposal by Zechariah Sitchin in one of his Earth Chronicles books. He wrote a series of six books. The third one is called The Wars of Gods and Men. And it's in that book that he basically argues that the pyramid was a weapon and that wars were fought over it and with it. And, you know, when I first read that book, Greg, I was just dumbfounded because part of his argument was that certain Sumerian texts had to be taken as referencing the Great Pyramid. And the reason that he argued that way, and I go into this in this book, and there's a subsequent book that's at the publisher now that I need to mention that's called The Demon in the Acre, and I get into Sitchin's argument in much more detail in that book that's coming out. It's kind of the sequel to Giza Death Star Revisited. 
the reason why it's a sequel is that <laughs> to make a long story even more complicated, in the original version of the Giza Death Star, I finished the book and I sent it out to a publisher. And while it was at the publisher being reviewed, I kept crunching numbers. And the original publisher that I sent it to rejected the book. And I thought, well, now's my chance. I can add my newly crunched numbers to the text and send it to a different publisher, which I did. And that turned out to be Adventures Unlimited. But in revising that version of the first book, I took out an epigraph. And it was an epigraph referring to Sitchin and his reference about the demon and the acre. Acre is an Akkadian word meaning a mountain or a pyramid, a ziggurat. So in other words, I thought, okay, it's already a complex enough hypothesis. We don't need to be talking about demons on top of everything else. <laughs> so, yes. so I added the epigraph back in the Giza Death Star Revisited fully intending to write kind of a sequel that would inject that element back into it, which I did. So that book we're waiting on at the publisher. But to get back to the weapon hypothesis, it is Zechariah Sitchin's, and he's basing it not only on Sumerian text, but on a very important point. And that point is, if you look at the earliest Sumerian clay seals, where they depict pyramids. The types of pyramids that these Sumerian seals depict are not the kind of stepped ziggurat or pyramid that you find in Mesopotamia. What you see on those Sumerian seals are smooth-sided pyramids like you find in Egypt. And in the case of the demon in the Acre, he's citing a text called the Ludlow Bel Nemeki, which refers to the mountain house or acre in which the demon dwells. And this mountain house is located in the lower world over the horizon, which Sitchin interprets to mean Africa, which of course is the lower world from Mesopotamia. And of course, it's over the horizon. So he's got his reasons for thinking that the Great Pyramid was a weapon. Now, when I read that, Greg, I read that whole book, I believe, in a couple of days. It was rather a breathless read. And I thought, you know, this is really intriguing. No one has picked up on this very, very interesting hypothesis and tried to investigate how that might be true. So that's essentially what the Giza Death Star Revisited is. It's an attempt to explain and I hope people understand that it's a very speculative case. It's an attempt to explain the physics that might have made the Great Pyramid a weapon. So that's it in a long trip around Harvey's barn. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great summary. And I am with you on the idea of wanting to redo old work. If I could redo my first interviews that are out there, you bet I would. I think that's a common thing. <laughs> people feel. Uh -huh. But in the intro of this new book, you say that as wild as this premise already is, you actually pulled your punches and released a book that was actually much milder, believe it or not, than the high octane speculation that was really circling around in your mind. Yeah. And 
you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that gets me excited when I'm getting into a book. But what were some of those wilder thoughts that you held back before, but now help flesh out this overall case that you make? Well, one of them is precisely this demon in the acre business. Hmm. So what I'm trying to do in the Giza Death Star Revisited is flesh out the original weapon hypothesis, which does not require the element of demonology to make it work. <laughs> okay. So right, right. But when you add that, which is what this other book does, things I think become crystal clear. Now I've been hinting, here's where I've been pulling my punches. If you read all of my books, Greg, including the Giza Death Star series, including the books I've written about the Nazi Bell and some of the stuff that they were up to, including the Philadelphia Experiment book, Secrets of the Unified Field, and on and on I could go. If there is one thing that unites everything that I've been writing about in terms of the science or physics involved, it's plasma. Mm-hmm. And this is particularly the case with the weapon hypothesis to the Great Pyramid, because I genuinely think that you can only explain the weapon hypothesis through some highly speculative alternative physics. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Back when I first wrote the Giza Death Star, toward the end of that book, I speculated that the missing crystals from the Grand Gallery, and I do believe that there were crystalline arrays that were originally inside the Great Pyramid, that were both optically and acoustically resonant to various dimensions of the structure itself. And that structure in turn, as we're going to probably talk later in our discussion today, that structure in turn is dimensionally resonant to, or is comprised of dimensional analogs of local celestial space. So it's the presence of these dimensions in the Great Pyramid that have led some people to speculate, well, it was a big bureau of weights and measures in stone. And I can see to a certain extent why that hypothesis makes sense to those people. But these crystals that were inside the Grand Gallery, I originally called phi crystals. And the reason I called them phi crystals is that I was speculating that they had very peculiar indices of refraction that would allow light essentially to be trapped inside the crystal lattice structure rather than part of that light escaping it. So in other words, I was envisioning crystals that functioned as a kind of mini singularity. Okay. In other words, a gravitational attraction was exerted by these crystals due to their property of trapping light. Now, at the time I advanced that speculation, Greg, these crystals were in my imagination, you know, two or 300 years out from being developed. Lo and behold, and I put this in the new book, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I believe it was, has created metamaterial crystals 
that have indices of refraction that would allow them, in their own inventor's words, to function as many singularities. And this within the space of 20 years or so, when I first wrote the book, and now the reality is out there. So, you know, it's things like this that I was pulling my punches on. It's not necessary to do so anymore. The other thing that I was pulling punches, I, you know, I wrote the book, The Cosmic War, and I was really dropping hints right and left in that book with my attention and focus on plasma cosmology. Because it's obvious that if you're turning to people like Nikola Tesla and what he was doing towards the end of his life, he was experimenting with plasma under extreme electrical conditions. And this is what I think made the weapon hypothesis ultimately work. It's a kind of Tesla system on steroids, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. Yes, I love it. And I'm sure the audience knows that I'm quite excited about this mentioning of plasma. So it is bittersweet because I saw the announcement on your Facebook page of this new book, The Demon and the Anchor, mm -hmm. and the subtitle is Angels, Demons, Plasmas, Patristics, and Pyramids. Yep. And this is right up my alley because lately I've had a lot of guests talking about the connection between plasma and non-physical entities, call them angels. Right. And I would suspect that if you have a technology that's messing with multidimensionality, yeah. that you might encounter things that live in other dimensions, perhaps. Right. <laughs> and well, yeah. I'm thinking that's where you're going. And I'm just curious what you would say about the connection between these life forms and plasma. Well, the connection is that the plasma could be those life forms. Okay, mm -hmm. it's, it's just that simple. What most of those people are not doing is, you know, we live in a theologically illiterate age, and we live in one of the most gallopingly theologically illiterate countries on the face of the planet. So most of the people talking about plasma as life forms, Greg, are avoiding consulting any traditional Christian text. And I've got to warn people right off the bat, in that new book, you're going to be doing traditional stand-up, straight, no-gnosticism <laughs> texts, because it's really those traditional texts where you get clear indications that are so detailed that could be very easily understood to be descriptions of plasma. It becomes rather difficult to ignore. But in my opinion, if you grant the proposition that plasmas, or at least some of them, could not only be forms of inorganic, immaterial, so to speak, life, but that some of them could actually be intelligent life, then any experimentation with a plasma mm. is going to attract their attention. <laughs> Let me give you a, a for example, and it's it's not too it's not too hard to figure out what it might be, because when you set off an atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb, what are you creating? Well, you're creating a plasma. Mm. And if plasmas or some of them are indeed alive, and you set one of those things off, 
you're going to get their attention. Yes, yes. And we have. <laughs> and we did. And yep, <laughs> sure enough, you know, shortly thereafter, we start getting visits from UFOs and what have you. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about is that famous space shuttle tether experiment where you had the tether that they were, you know, go figure that they didn't have enough physics to figure this was going to snap. But they're extending, you know, this several kilometers long wire, <laughs> which, you know, any junior high school physics class would have told you this is a really bad idea. <laughs> You're extending this wire in vacuum space in the middle of the solar wind. <laughs> and, and you don't think you're going to get a current? No, I'm sorry. That's that's not going to work. So, you know, they did this experiment a few years ago on the space shuttle, and this tether snapped. Mm. And, you know, you see these videos of this tether out in the distance fading away from the space shuttle. And then all of a sudden, all these little dots start showing up <laughs> and swarming around the tether. And, you know, it looks for everything like some sort of form of life has come to investigate. You know, what the heck is that? <laughs> and what's it doing here? So the idea of, of a plasma life is not new. The physicist David Bohm, I think, was one of the first ones to propose it. And, of course, plasmas were named by the American chemist Longmuir, who coined the term from biology, coined the term plasma to refer to these things. So the suspicion has always been there. This is what I'm trying to get at, that some of these things might be alive because that's the way they behave. Right, right. Yes, that's typically what comes up, that these plasmas are either the life form itself or a vehicle, a mechanism in a which vehicle, right. it kind of operates in. And that debate right. even goes on with human beings. Are we our physical body or are we a soul that has a body right. so it can have experiences and interact with other right. soul bodies? Is it, right. you know, it's like a vehicle. Right. Uh, what I think is strange, because obviously there is this huge body of, of knowledge about UFOs interacting with nuclear facilities. Right. But it makes me wonder about their logic or their effectiveness, really, because they seem to show up in what looks like a kind of a craft shape right. to do something like shoot a beam at a nuclear facility to shut it down in a, in a strange way. Right. And, and I understand why they would want to do that, but they don't seem very effective at communicating their message or really getting us to stop messing with such things in a, in a <laughs> widespread way. Well, let's go back to Tesla for a minute. If you look at what he was doing in his Colorado Springs experiments, he was really experimenting with forms of plasma. Electrical arcing, which is what he was doing, is a form of plasma. You know, we know it as lightning, but that's another form of plasma. So if you look at what the plasma physicists are actually telling us, they're telling us, first of all, that plasma accounts for, and I hope people really latch onto this here, because I think this is kind of the telltale clue that there's something up with Sitchin's weapon hypothesis for the Great Pyramid. Plasma constitutes about 99% of all the matter 
in the whole universe. Wow. Now, that means very bluntly, folks, that the physics that you and I think of as physics, the physics of Albert Einstein, of Sir Isaac Newton, of even Max Planck or Werner Heisenberg or even Robert Oppenheimer, that's the physics of the other 1%. Why? Because they're dealing with either gases, liquids, or solids. Mm. That's 1% of the matter in the universe. So in other words, all of our physics thus far, or most of our physics thus far, has been the physics of the 1%. Right. And this applies to biophysics, to plasmas. Because what plasma physics is telling us is there's a physics of the 99%, and we're barely starting in our comprehension of that. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's important. If Tesla's playing around with this stuff, he is playing around with something that is very new. And one of his, and I hope people latch on to this, because one of the first things he points out is that the circuit geometry in his impulse system that he's experimenting around with in Colorado Springs, the circuit geometry actually magnifies the effect. So in other words, the more the circuit is segmented, the higher or more efficient the effect that you get out of it. Hmm. Now, stop and think of that in terms of the Great Pyramid. What is it? Well, it's a big pile of rocks. And incidentally, it's a big pile of piezoelectric rock. So the phenomenon that Tesla's describing, if it is the same phenomenon that is being accessed by the Great Pyramid, that means that the segment, the circuit, itself, the pyramid, with all of those segments in it, is massively piezoelectric. It has a massive potential. Mm -hmm. And on top of this, Tesla made another discovery with that electrical impulse system. Now, this is where people are going to have to screw their thinking cap on. Uh-oh. When Tesla began his experiments with that system, he began because he noticed something that he thought was significant. When he closed the circuit, when he created a circuit, at the instant the circuit was closed, if it was closed on enough high-voltage direct current, what would happen is he would experience a stinging shock. And he discovered that at the moment of the closure of the circuit, the current was not moving through the circuit. It was moving over the surface of the circuit. So in other words, instead of an electrical current moving through a wire, at the instant of closure, if the voltage was high enough, that current would not move through the wire. It would hit up against the resistance barrier of the wire. And because at that moment that resistance barrier is momentarily infinite, the current would have to go somewhere so it would flow over the surface. Follow me? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like a belly flop in a swimming pool. 
Got it. Okay. And at the instant that he closes the circuit and creates that effect, he breaks the circuit and then pulses it again and again and again by closing the circuit. This is the key to his wireless power transmission. You'll notice that what he has abandoned here is alternating current. Mm -hmm. He's moved way beyond that. Now, in discovering that the current is moving over the surface, he's really saying that the circuit functions as a waveguide. And now what happens if you suddenly start contracting the surface area? Well, it steps the efficiency and energy of that current up. So now imagine the Great Pyramid is a waveguide, and you're creating an electroacoustic pulse that moves from the bottom of the pyramid to the top. What happens? Well, if that same phenomena is applicable, that current is going to move over all of the surfaces of all of those stones comprising the structure toward the apex where the surface area gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it steps up that potential tremendously. So that basically is what I'm suggesting here, that the Tesla system, if you apply it to the Great Pyramid, is creating an enormously powerful electroacoustic pulse. Mm. And this, incidentally, is very in line with what Sitchin's texts say, because he produces a text where one of the ancient Sumerian gods is flying over the pyramid, according to Sitchin, and is seized by a very strong crushing force. Hmm. Well, there's your electroacoustic or gravitational pulse once again. So I suspect that this is what's making the pyramid work. Now, let's go back to our demon. You're doing all of this, and you're doing it how? Well, you're creating a plasma, <laughs> okay? And plasmas have an interesting property. Plasmas are not homogeneous. They have internal structure. And in fact, you could view plasmas in a certain kind of way as being crystalline in structure. Follow me? Mm -hmm. So you have a crystalline structure called the Great Pyramid, inside of which, if you're following Chris Dunn, and I mentioned this in the book as well, inside of which you're creating a possible endothermic hydrogen plasma. Now, endothermic basically means a cool-temperature plasma. We tend to think of plasmas as being very hot, but you can actually have very cool ones as well. Out in interstellar space, plasmas would be, by definition, very cool. But you've got a potential for a plasma inside the structure. This is what I'm saying. And you are using a phenomenon that's going to, by its very nature, if the Tesla system is applicable here, you're using a system which is going to produce a plasma in addition to the one that you've got circulating inside the pyramid. So on your line of thinking, Greg, could that be transducing an entity? Well, answer, yeah, probably. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's almost like the pyramids could have housed yeah. a plasma demon that could be unleashed. Right, right. Or you could write about it in that way, in an ancient way, if you were to write about such things. Sometimes they anthropomorphize things or they use grandiose language. Right. But yet it's also kind of true. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the, the term acre in Akkadian, it's an interesting term because as I pointed out in my book, The Cosmic War, the term can function metaphorically as the term for a planet. But in its basic meaning, what it means is a mountain. And it therefore is the term that in Sumerian and Akkadian, they will use for a ziggurat or a pyramid. And incidentally, the Egyptians have the very same use because their word for a mountain is ben. And what is at the top of a pyramid? Well, the ben-ben. Yeah, It's the little mountain. So in other words, the term acre can also be translated as mountain house, or in other words, a mountain dwelling. So you've got all of these meanings, you know, in the original text suggesting this tie to some sort of non-corporeal or immaterial or inorganic type of life. It's present almost everywhere. And, you know, let's be honest, Greg. The ancient view of things was much more sophisticated than the modern one. Why? Because the modern view is basically that everything's a machine. The ancient view is basically that most things are living things. Yeah. And that it's a very small segment of the universe that is not alive. <laughs> so it's almost it's almost the flip of the modern view. Yeah. So, you know, I have no difficulty with the idea that the ancients, be they Christian church fathers or Buddhist monks or what have you, might have been writing in some of their spiritual writings about these types of life forms. Mm. <laughs> I should just throw my script away because we are way off where I thought we were going to be going. <laughs> but... Let's touch on what you say is a common question people have when they're trying to visualize the pyramid weapon technology, uh -huh. which is how do you aim it? And it makes sense <laughs> that people would wonder that because they assume it's some kind of beam coming off right. the capstone. Right. But this isn't conceptually correct. You write no. that it's not so much pointed and aimed at a target as it is tuned to and brought into resonance with a target right. by a kind of non-local harmonic resonance. Right. Help people wrap their heads around that and some of the other qualities of such a weapon, like range, perhaps. How would you lock onto something if you decided that thing's got to go and I've got this weapon over here? Okay. Range is virtually infinite. Tesla himself said that he could beam enormous power to almost any distance in space with his system. And in the case of the Great Pyramid, if you can imagine for a moment that the universe, and let's just put no limits on it, say the universe is a musical instrument like a piano, okay? And the Great Pyramid is a small segment of the keyboard <laughs> on that piano. Hmm. Now, the phenomenon of harmonics means that if you press down, and this is an experiment, anybody with an acoustic piano, not a digital piano, it won't work with those things, but with an acoustic piano can try at home. 
they can press down any note on that piano silently. And then I would recommend pressing it down in the middle of the keyboard somewhere. And then one or two octaves lower than that very same note, strike it as you're holding that note silently open. Strike the other note an octave or two lower. That's the same note. And what are you going to hear? Well, you're going to hear the struck note, right? But you're also going to hear that open, silently pressed string vibrating and producing its own tone. Okay? That's the way the harmonic series works. That's the way the universe works. Now let's go to the Great Pyramid. I mentioned that if you study the Great Pyramid, anybody who has studied it in depth will tell you this, that there are dimensional measures inside the structure that are analogs, if you will, of something present in local celestial space-time. Okay? There are analogs, for example, of dimensional measures in the Great Pyramid that are harmonics of the polar radius of the Earth, or that are harmonics of the equigravisphere, the neutral gravity point between the Earth and the Moon, and on and on we could go, okay? Now, what are all these things doing there? Well, they're there for one of two purposes. If the people who think that the pyramid was constructed as a big, huge bureau of weights and measures are correct, then somebody spent a lot of money to build this structure and put in all of those dimensional analogs so that people like us could come along someday and say, oh, looky, looky, somebody way back then put this in that building. Isn't that neat? <laughs> okay. Right, and they don't care about people in the future. They care about what they're doing. Uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But the other explanation for their presence is that they're present in the structure to make its operation more efficient. So now let's go to the power plant model for just a second. I met this author years ago, Chris Dunn who wrote the book called The Giza Power Plant, a wonderful book if people haven't read it. Because all Mr. Dunn is is an engineer, and all he does is he looks at that structure with an engineer's eye. And in doing so, he concludes this thing was never built nor intended as a tomb for anybody. It's a machine. And in his view, it was a machine for the production of power. And this is the one area where I have a little quibble with Mr. Dunn. When we build an electrical power plant, we don't put analogs of the distance between the Earth and the Sun in the electrical power plant. <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> we also don't put analogs of the neutral point of gravity between the Earth and the Moon <laughs> in the structure. We have no need to do so. But if you are building a structure whose purpose precisely is to be an oscillator, a coupled harmonic oscillator, to those structures in local space-time, then yeah, you would put those analogs in the structure. You know, I'm a pipe organist. So, you know, I grew up playing a musical instrument 
that I literally had to learn the harmonic series in order to be able to understand all those numbers on organ stops and what they meant. <laughs> okay. Yes. And what all those numbers mean is you are emphasizing that particular harmonic when you pull that particular stop. That's all it's doing. <laughs> so in other words, when you're pulling stops on a pipe organ, you're in a certain sense tuning it to produce the effect that you want to produce. Well, this is essentially what you're doing with the Great Pyramid. It has all of those analogs present in the structure in order to enable it to be an oscillator of those very structures in local space-time. And therefore, you don't point the building. You actually tune it to its target. It's like tuning a radio to the station that you want to receive. In the pyramid's case, you're tuning the building to the target you want to destroy. That's what you're doing. Right. Well, how specific can you get? I mean, can you target an individual in China at, can, like you would target Mars as long as you know the resonance? And what happens to the target? Does it just explode in spectacular fashion? Does it melt? Does it like what would that do to a thing? You could tune it to a target to produce explosions or over time earthquakes, you know, slower cavitation. In other words, you can pretty much tune it to the effect that you want to produce. As far as tuning it to an individual, let's put it this way. There are aspects of the structure that suggest that with enough sophistication in your science, you might be able to do that. I hesitate, however, in saying that you could do that for reasons I think that will make more sense after people are able to read The Demon in the Acre, the sequel to this current book. For the moment, let's just say that you could tune it to a sort of group target. Mm -hmm. In other words, a region on a planetary surface. You could certainly do that. You could certainly produce an explosion. You could produce an earthquake. You could produce very, very severe types of infrasound and all of the things that result from infrasound, you know, headache and things like this. You could do a number of different things with it, provided you're tuning it correctly and you're using the energy requirement to a specific effect. You could do all of that. Let's remember what Tesla's system also told him he could do. He, in some of his writings, said that he could split the planet. Right and he could cause the crust of the earth to rise and fall several miles, you know, create massive earthquakes. His thinking was very, very basic on this score. He's basically sending out, with his electrical impulse system, he's sending out currents that flows over the surface. Again, this is the way the impulse system works, flows over the surface of the planet. Well, that means that wherever that current starts the flow, there's going to be an antipode to that current at the opposite pole on the Earth. And at that point, that initial current is going to be at full strength once again. So you can basically target this 
anywhere on the planet, depending on where you set off that initial impulse. Mm -hmm. And the same thing would hold true on any other planet. With this thing, you're literally using the phenomenon of non-locality and harmonic resonance to create your effect. And I'm pointing this out because in the plasma universe, this is what's very important for people to understand. In the plasma universe, everything is connected to everything else. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. So if you're using Tesla's system, let's remember what Tesla did. He flipped, he absolutely flipped upside down the normal broadcast circuit. Because what's the normal broadcast circuit? Well, you've got an antenna that sticks up into the air and it's beaming out all this power into the atmosphere. And the return circuit, is what? The return in that circuit is the planet. Hmm. So all Tesla did is he flipped the whole thing upside down. <laughs> the antenna becomes the planet, and the return circuit is the tower. Hmm. So the planet is what's actually doing the beaming and broadcasting of power. Now, once you've got a system that can do that, on that scale. Yeah, you're pretty much broadcasting everywhere. <laughs> you know? And this is why he made the claims for the system that he did. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there are a lot of theories about the pyramids and you do a great job deconstructing them and the holes they have. Personally, the theory that I want to be true is that they were ancient free energy devices. The power plant right. theory, it's warm, it's fuzzy, it's nice. It's nice. Of course. <laughs> We have pyramids all over the planet, so the speculation would be that it's a networked free energy power grid. And it's a fun concept, but I do get the flaws in that hypothesis that you're mentioning and also that you write about. But the off-the-books physics that you talk about usually does seem to have both positive and negative applications, so it might be hard to get at intention so long ago. I mean, obviously humans are going to human and we tend to make weapons and focus on mm -hmm. destructive powers of things. Mm -hmm. But this is always what comes up in free energy conversations that they could be the universe's best gift or the worst curse. And as you mentioned, it seems like this power is, is so immense. Like some researchers, they start defending the elite, being like, well, this is why they protect this from us, because it has such destructive capabilities. But how is anything still here if one being in any one place could access such power? Does the universe have safeguards of some kind? Well, that's actually two questions. Anytime you're talking about free energy or zero-point energy or anything like that, and I want people to really latch onto this, you're talking about a kind of physics that is of such potential destructive power, it would make a hydrogen bomb look like a kitchen match. <laughs> it is enormously powerful, and it is enormously dangerous because of this. Because anytime you're constructing any device reliant upon that, you are playing around with that kitchen match. That said, your question about does the universe have some built-in mechanism to prevent that? Let's go back to Tesla for a minute and to that claim that many people have made 
that J.P. Morgan put a stop to Tesla's system because Morgan discovered that he couldn't meter it and therefore make any money off of it. Right. This, I think, is nonsense. Really? <laughs> pure, yeah, pure, unadulterated, steaming piles of bovina excreta. Okay. <laughs> well, don't hold back now. <laughs> but, and the reason I think that is that Morgan stood to make a lot of money off of Tesla's system simply on the royalty arrangements, the licensing arrangements that any appliance that had used that system would have given him. Morgan stood to make a lot of money. So why does Morgan pull the plug? Well, I suspect Morgan pulls the plug because either he or someone in Tesla's circle, you know, people like Charles Steinmetz and people like that, went to Morgan and said, hey, by the way, this system that he's building can literally be used as a tremendously powerful weapon. And the other bad thing about the system is it's very simple to build. Anybody can do this. And we, you know, once the system is out and known, you could have XYZ dictator over there in, in Eurasia building the system. We don't want this to happen because we can't keep track of it. I suspect that something like that is the reason why Morgan pulled the plug. So let's go back to the Great Pyramid. Clearly, we have a structure here that is an analog of local celestial space-time and pretty much all configurations therein. Do we want to destroy the structure because of that? Or was there some sort of built-in safeguard that was there at the outset? Well, my answer is yes. And once again, what is that built-in safeguard? It's plasma. Hmm. Because if plasma is a life form, then we have long traditions in virtually every religion on this planet that is willing to consider the idea of an intelligent, bodiless life form called angels or demons. There are bad angels and there are good ones. And I suspect that if this system was ever taken out, it was taken out also by such entities and prohibited from being reused. And that is exactly what the texts tell us. <laughs> yeah, tale as old as time. Humans build something and the plasma beans come by and disable it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's my Cosmic Versailles Treaty that I talked about in the Secret Space Conference of 2015 all over again. Yes. Because, you know, at the end of World War One, what happens? Well, the Allies tell the Germans, don't make any more big artillery. <laughs> We've really had it with that stuff. And the other thing they impose on the Germans is this demilitarized zone around Germany at the Rhineland. And by demilitarizing the Rhineland area of Germany, what the Allies are attempting to do is push the jumping-off point for any future German mobilization back several tens and, and a couple of cases, hundreds of miles, you know, to give them time to react. Well, again, look at the Book of Enoch, the Slavonic 
text of the Book of Enoch. You have suggestions in that text of a similar type of quarantine zone around the earth. And in Sitchin's text, you actually have an inventory of things that he believes were inside the Great Pyramid that made it work. And those things are removed from the pyramid to basically, it's like taking the firing pin out of the gun. The gun still looks nice, and it's functional, but it's not deadly anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't fire any bullets from it, you know. So on that view, you have in these texts the idea that this weapon was actually destroyed, not by destroying the shell of the building, but by taking all the components out of it that made it work. Right, right. And I go back to what I said in in my book, The Cosmic War, Greg. There are several classes of these things that were removed from the structure. And in a very small number of cases, you're dealing with things that could not be destroyed. And therefore, they were very carefully hidden. Right. These these metamaterial crystals. Right. And you even talk about in this book how a lot of crystals and gemstones have a deep history of correspondence to the planets in the solar system. Yes. Might this be a component of the targeting? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because I point out in the book, Greg, that every single crystal grows as a response to the environment in which it's grown. Right. Like the rings in a tree, it holds a record. Like the rings in a tree, it holds a record. And the record in this case are all the lattice defects that you find in a crystal. Now, the defects themselves have names. They're screw defects, displacement defects, Frankel defects, Schatzky defects, and so on and so forth. So crystals that are grown in a high-gravity environment are going to have lots of defects. Crystals grown in a low-gravity environment are going to have much, much fewer defects. So in other words, if you have, let's hypothesize for a minute and speculate, that if you know this about crystals, if you have a science of crystallography sufficiently advanced, you would be able to determine what sort of space-time environment that crystal was grown in simply because of its defects. And as a result of its defects, that crystal would be a natural harmonic oscillator to the conditions of space-time that produced it. Now let's extend that hypothesis. If you have crystals that are extremely old, that were grown or came to be in the conditions that were prevalent in the first, if you will, minutes or days or weeks of the universe, those crystals would not only be efficient oscillators of those conditions, but most likely efficient oscillators of all subsequent conditions. So, in other words, this lore that you have in many religions about the foundation stone of the earth or the foundation stone of the universe 
and that stone conferring great power on its possessors. This is why I think that lore is there. There is something about the physics of crystals that was known to whomever built that structure. Because everything in that structure tells me that they were possessed of an extremely sophisticated physics. And that includes the crystals that they put in the structure. Metamaterial crystals, singularities, all of that stuff. Yeah, these things would be also tremendously powerful oscillators of conditions of space-time that arise out of the initial conditions of the universe and therefore of the initial conditions of the crystals formed in those conditions. So in other words, again, I think I was dumbfounded, Greg, when I saw a prediction that I made 20 years ago basically come true much faster than I ever thought it would. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It's got to make you feel good. Well, not really, because that means <laughs> that means that all my other wild and woolly speculation might have some basis in in truth, and that's very disturbing. You know, that means that somebody is reconstructing the science that makes all this work. Right. And quite frankly, I don't want to be around if they're able to reconstruct. You know, I'd rather watch hydrogen bombs be tested than watch this stuff come back into existence. Uh. Because this stuff is truly planet-busting. It's truly star-busting. It's very, very bad stuff. Right. And let's get into that aspect a bit more, because obviously we've referenced a cosmic interplanetary war as a concept that's very interesting. We have talked in the past about the components of the Treaty of Versailles template for the aftermath of such a conflict, but help people wrap their heads around what might have been the two sides of this war, or even how it played out, the conclusion of such a war? Well, the two sides are good and evil. You know, it's just that simple. I ultimately think that the war, and I've said this on many occasions, that mankind is both the battleground and the prize. And the reason why is again, this is a very ancient view of humanity, that humanity is a microcosm and that the universe, I'm citing a church father by the name of St. Maximus the Confessor here, who said the flip side of that is that the universe is a macanthropos, is a large man. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient view, it meant that mankind was the one creature in the whole universe that had one foot in both realities. He has one foot in the material reality, and he has another foot in the spiritual or immaterial, or if you will, the plasma reality. He's a common surface between the two. He's the essential linchpin or the connecting link if you will, between the two. Mm -hmm. So if you are a particularly malevolent individual, Lucifer, for example, and you want to strike a blow against God where it's really going to hurt, well, where do you strike it? Well, you strike it right at the linchpin. You strike the blow right at the connecting link or right at the image 
and so on and so forth. And it's very interesting to me, Greg, that in Islam, Iblis, which is their name for Satan, there is a tradition that Iblis was, how to put it, not jealous of mankind, but just more or less livid <laughs> that that God would make this monkey, you know, the the bearer of the connecting link. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there's the element here of jealousy and pride that we've heard in our own Western Christian traditions that surfaces in a very different way, but yet amounts to the same thing. <laughs> You know, that that this little monkey is a real problem to us super sophisticated, non-material, non-corporeal beings. So, yeah, this is where the war is fought. The war is fought over mankind. Now, how does that make it cosmic? Well, by the same token, if we're dealing with plasma, and plasmas constitute 99% of all matter in the universe and some are alive and intelligent and they're fighting other such beings then yeah you could truly be having a cosmic war it's not confined just to this planet or this solar system or for that matter even this galaxy in the book that we're waiting for i point out that get this greg there's a plasma structure that they know about in the universe that is 187 billion light years long. Jeez. <laughs> Let that sink in. A plasma structure that is 187 billion light years long. That's crazy. Yeah, that's not only crazy, it throws a huge monkey wrench into the Einsteinian view that information can only be transferred at the speed of light. How does structure like that hold together? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a very curious thing. I mean, the Electric Universe folks say that stars and suns themselves are plasmas, so this, like, association we have with god and the sun i mean it's there's a linkage there that isn't uh -huh. totally crazy sure uh, it's it seems like of uh, course yeah these bodies are themselves alive and one that's 187 billion light years long would be quite powerful yeah that's precisely my point you've seen it if that structure is alive and moreover intelligent <laughs> <laughs> then yeah you're dealing with something that you know, fulfills all the bill of religious traditions around the world about the power of angels mm -hmm. and about the memory. Now, this again, I guarantee you folks, you're just going to have to trust me on this and wait for the new book to come out because I start the book with a lengthy patristic quotation just to show you that this is not going to be something disturbing to any traditional Christian. It will be very disturbing to a traditional materialist. Ah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. As it should be. <laughs> as, as it should be, yes. But anyway, my point here is that you could be dealing with entities that are so far above us in terms of their ability and intelligence that, yeah, we're just kind of gnats. Mm -hmm. in comparison. 
that structure that's 187 billion light years large, I worked out that it's about 340,000 times the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy. Wow. <laughs> that's big. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's big. Man, this has been a wild ride. Yeah. Really interesting. I'm glad we could revisit the Giza Death Star. And I'm glad you put out this new book that kind of summarizes it all up. And the next book, The Demon of Anchor, sounds really amazing, like it's going to be great, too. It's a small book, but it I think it will tie together a lot of stuff for a lot of people. Mm. Well, I look forward to it. And I'm super happy we could do this again. I hope we have many more. I consider you one of the greats. And you're certainly in my personal podcast guest hall of fame. Before I let you go, let's remind the people of what they get if they do become a geezer at geezadeathstar.com. Well, the membership is $12 a month, which incidentally, that's been our price ever since we started this website about 15 years ago. We have not raised our rates. Basically, you get access to all the members' content. There's quite a few webinars in there. There's also the ability to participate in our member vid chats, which is by far and away what most members enjoy the most about it is I spend a lot of time talking to my members in the vid chats every other Friday for about, I would say, on average, anywhere from four to six hours, just fielding questions, taking their comments, talking. It's our social life. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. Yes. It is. Well, excellent. Another classic, good sir. Take care and thanks again. All right, Greg. Thanks for having me back. See you around. <laughs> and would you look at that? Coming in hot, the return of the great Dr. Joseph P. Farrell and his canine sidekick, Shiloh. Going back to the original idea that put him on the conspiracy culture map. And longtime listeners know Dr. Farrell is in a small club of people that have been here as much as he has, which is because he's such an active writer and his subject matter is pretty varied, and he's as much a staple as anyone in this space, I would say. And I'm very appreciative of the many episodes we have done. And big thanks again to Damn My Eyes, one of my favorite versions of the THC opener. I love collecting more of them, but some have sounded a bit silly and cartoony to be kicking off important interviews with. So I like the darker, slightly more serious versions, just because I think they set the tone well. Anyway, I'm always collecting more at the HiresideChats at gmail.com. Keep them coming. But this was great. Because not only has his theory about the pyramids evolved, or at least been fleshed out to a greater and more detailed degree since he first put it out there, but I also think I've gotten better at wrapping my head around some of these concepts and how a lot of these alternative themes butt up against each other. I will say, though, it feels a little disappointing that I didn't get to read the new new book, The Demon in the Acre, before we did this. But at least I knew about it, and I wasn't totally blindsided, so we did get to preview it quite a bit. It sounds amazing, and it just slides so many pieces into place, considering alternative physics, spiritual forces triggered through the use of those physics, non-human intelligences, effects on our world, and plasma as a major bridge connecting these things. 
Like, that is the stuff I absolutely love right now. I don't even think you have to come to the same Giza Death Star conclusion to be fascinated by that stuff and to find the underlying science valid. Because this weapon hypothesis would just be one example of several where we see something that might have operated in such a paradigm. As I said, I want the pyramids to have been tools for exploring altered states of consciousness and blasting off into astral travel. I think that, or even the welling up of natural energies using pyramidal geometry, would explain why they are all over the planet. But if there are pyramids on Mars as well, what's that about? How would we not consider that there would be a connection between those and ours? And if not two receivers of some type of communication or travel, then it's likely what they quote-unquote sent was some kind of damage-inflicting effect because that's what we do. Plus, you fold in the John Brandenburg stuff about the isotopes in the Martian atmosphere and things start sliding into view. And like we talked about, Dr. Farrell makes a really good case for his premise in the book and breaks down why the other popular theories are inferior. But he does make the argument that humanity historically builds weapons and puts most of our budget or big project energy into the military bucket in pretty much all the times that we know about. So I see what he's saying. But Egyptians seem to be obsessed with consciousness in the other world. Most of their imagery seems to be more about that than war, but he obviously has a much more detailed understanding of the full scope. But fun stuff, much respect to Dr. Farrell. Becoming a Giza Death Star member is worth its weight in monoatomic gold. And if you only heard the first hour here, please just help me help you and convert over to Plus. Start getting the two-hour shows, because so often the first hour is barely getting off the ground. You need to get the best parts. Become a member at thehiresidechats.com or find me on Patreon. You can still use your podcast apps. You just plug in a new URL. It's worth it if you're a regular listener, but you start with a seven-day free trial anyway. In today's Plus Show, we talked about plasma beans, crop circles, and ceremonial magic tetrahedral geometry and the gravio-acoustic rotation of the Giza complex, non-locality, consciousness, and Napoleon, the ancient texts and writings that support Dr. Farrell's position on the pyramids, the cosmic quarantine and the secret space program, the Soviet black budget research on the pyramids and their conclusions, and then we folded in some current events, what's really going on behind the scenes of the international banking system, and what's up with Russia, Ukraine, Mr. Global, and the next conflict? All good stuff, come on in. As for higher side news, I know this is only the third show of the month, and it's May 25th, but you will get two more before the month ends, so brace yourself for some rapid-fire THC goodness. I'm working overtime, don't you worry. But let's also take a gander at the meetup calendar and see what the events are. I'm hoping at least a few people showed up for the Bali one. I haven't heard, but that was fun to see. And on deck next, we got a truther discussion at the Trails Cafe in Los Angeles, California on May 27th. 
We have a Vortex hangout at the Sundowner Barn Grill in Sedona, Arizona on June 3rd. Also on June 3rd, the Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida. And then we also have two on June 10th, one in Kurt Cudbright, Dumfries and Galloway, UK, and another recurring one out in Colorado, this time Golden, Colorado. And it seems like weed will be involved. <laughs> Go forth and meet some cool new people. Share some mutual love of THC. It's all free and totally user-generated. Go make an event of your own. Hiresidemeetups.com. And thank you, No Agenda, for doing it first. All right, I'm going to cut myself loose and just say thanks for listening. Thanks for keeping the faith. And thanks to Dr. Farrell. Much love to you and yours. I'll see you next time. Your move, Pyramid Plasma Weapon Wielders, Off the Books Physics Suppressors, and Giza Death Star Secret Keepers. Your fucking move. The truth has been hidden from me. the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we will make it through Believe it or not The truth is out there For people who have the eyes to see My favorite show Yes, THC.